And uh, next week we're starting a series where we're going to make our way through the book of 1 Peter. And each week uh, I'm promising this much that there'll be um, discussion notes for small groups. And there's a plan for how you might run a meeting. You don't have to stick to it. Um, but there's a, a, a plan, there's a whole bunch of these at the back desk over there, so if you're interested in that, because it wouldn't start this week, but it might next, and it's nice if you have something to work on. So there's notes at the back over there. Uh, but this week we're not doing the 1 Peter series. This week's prompted by a conversation I had with someone in, uh, uh, in the church who, who asked about, hey, so what's the, Colin, what's the story with tongues and now, every message is a journey, and this journey starts in a strange place. I'd just like to check and see how many people here, if I said, reach under your chair and there was a game of Monopoly there, would go, oh, yes. How many hands would go, yes? Okay, now let's, let's be brutally honest. How many hands would be, please no, anything but that? <laughs> yep. I'm... Okay, so just want to tell you a story about Monopoly because, you know, Monopoly is a game that says it's great to get. It was a rainy summer holiday and Julian, Dick, Anne and Georgina were playing Monopoly again. A good thing to do on a rainy day, they thought. Only most games went the same way. Anne was a bit soft-hearted, so she'd make trades that were better for someone else than her, and we know where that leads. Julian had his head in the clouds, he was usually thinking about something else. And sometimes he'd forget to charge rent or have to be prompted to move. And Georgina, well, she just loved being with the mates. And so usually, each week when they played Monopoly, Dick would win. And as you can imagine, Dick loved winning. He used to lie awake at night and plan strategies. The next rainy day, this is what I'm going to do. It didn't really matter, everybody enjoyed the game, and at the end of the game, everything goes back in the box. Only one week, Dick had been thinking about this, and he thought, hmm, you know, this isn't fair. I put a lot more effort into Monopoly than the other guys do, so, you know, I think I should have a better reward. And he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he thought, I know what to do. So, the next week, when it rained, and Georgina and Anne and Julian came to the table, they discovered Dick was already there, and he'd set up the board, precisely where it had finished last time. He had all the money and all the properties with all the hotels. And they said, what's the story, Dick, said Georgina. Ah, said Dick, well, I thought to be fair, we should start where we finished last time. Rent, please. Now, anyone like to predict what would happen now? Yes, it, it, uh, things were getting wrong. Fortunately, actually, in this story, just as the argument was getting really heated, Timmy the dog bounded in and knocked everything over. So they had some lashings of ginger beer and had to start a game from scratch. <laughs> now, if you're wondering what's going on in this story, um, that is how our economic system works. It is a game of monopoly that says it's great to get. But what are we missing here? We never reset it. It just keeps rolling. So those who have lots get more. Capitalism is a fantastic way to motivate people and a really good way to make people do things efficiently. These are major, major strengths. It's a really terrible way to redistribute what you make. Because the rich get rich, richer. And, and who wants to play that way? Well, if it were me and you set up the board like that, 
I wouldn't play. And yes, I'd get cross. And things might get thrown. And I'll tell you the story, because I'm, and basically, if Monopoly says it's good to get, well, in this story, the only person who's going to get is Dick. The only person who's going to win is that. And I'll tell you the story because this is in the air we breathe. In Monopoly, everything is assigned a value. In the slide above, Park Lane is worth $350. It's got a value and there's a rental for it. And the way you win this game is you keep pay attention to what things are worth and the risk. How much money have I got? And you're working within that system. Um, if you're, it's, to win is to understand value and risk and to be selfish and self-serving. If you start giving trades that benefit someone else, they're going to benefit out of that and you're not. It was first designed in 1903 by Lizzie Maggie. And she used it, she wanted to explain tax theory to people. Because they didn't really understand tax. But she also wanted it to teach, this is what she said, people the negative aspects of allowing land to be controlled in private monopolies. She wanted to know if you just let people with money get more, where it ends up is here. Which is interesting, when we've let our kids play this, are we thinking, I'll teach them a lesson? No, we're teaching them it's good to win. So it's a good thing that Monopoly really doesn't have a lot of connection to our world, does it? Only, speaking of assigning values, anyone get this in their letterbox? This is the no-leaming, um, I, I picked a bit of random, uh, random uh, junk mail. This is an, oh, sorry, it's the Harvey Norman catalogue. And I'm showing it to you because there's something so obvious here that we don't even notice it. Okay. There are eight laptops, is it eight? Yes, there are eight laptops on the page. And according to Harvey Norman, what is the most important piece of information we need to know about each laptop? Yeah, it's the bit that's in bold, isn't it? They don't think that you care that one has a triple reciprocating Amtel core with a card and a fingerprint-resistant touchscreen, and the other one slices apples and sings opera. <laughs> they, don't you know, they don't care. They think the most important thing is price. And all of these advertisements, and it happens pretty much across the board, watch them. Next time you're, okay, you're binging Netflix, maybe you're not watching TV. <laughs> Next time you pass a bit, just glance your eye at it. Look for the biggest text. Nine times out of ten, not ten times, nine times out of ten, what they're saying is the most important thing is price, and that is assigning value. Back to the Monopoly game. Advertising keeps telling us the most important thing is the value, and that it's great to get. Having stuff. Get yourself one of these if you can afford the price. And without thinking about it, our junk mail trains us into thinking cost-value. It's in us. And we don't notice it. It's in the air we breathe. We don't notice it until we go into another setting. I really, for me, I've talked about this a few times, when you're invited as a group onto a marae, you are to take a koha. Right? That's a gift. Right? Now, as an, uh, your typical Pākehā, I want to know, for planning purposes, how much is that gift? But actually, that's not the right question. If you ask the Māori of the Māori, they'll say, well, whatever you think it's worth. Whatever, you know, they, they don't, actually, they don't even say that. Whatever is appropriate. 
They won't answer the question because it's a heart question. It's not really about value. And as a Westerner, I'm trained in value. So it's a good thing life isn't like Monopoly, is it? Or is it? This is a picture of what they call the inequality tower. It's um, dated nine, uh, 2018. At this current, so 2018, the richest 1% of New Zealand owed 22% of the assets. The uh, top 10% of New Zealand owned 59% of the assets. The top 50% own 98% of the assets. So what they've done here, he's drawn a 10-storey apartment block. And so 50% of New Zealand um, is crammed into, actually, I think it's a fifth of the ground floor. Does that sound like monopoly to you? It does to me, further on down the game. And, and I, look, I, I actually had a look at the chart they had for 2015, and I can tell you that these, the, the gap and the number of people crammed on that, if that's not getting better, that's been getting worse. And we have no Timmy the dog to knock the board over. And so what our world says is, it is blessed are the stinking rich, it is good to get. And we hear those stories all the time. And even when they're outliers, we hear, you know, the, the student who's saved doesn't have a student loan and buys their foot. We hear that story. That makes the press. Gives us great hope. Now, if at this stage you're thinking, oh, here's Colin. He's gone all left-wing political. Um, what's that got to do with following Jesus? That's a fair question. I'm just trying to point out that the world we live in has a bunch of rules that we take for granted. And that to a large extent, they're around the idea that it's good for me to get. That's what they want, and that there are consequences. And so Toby Morris, you, you can't read it in the text down here, he says, the poorest 50% of the country um, live in half, oh, it is half the ground floor, with little or no assistance savings, living week to week. It's crammed and cold, and living like this leads to poor health, struggles at school, and a pretty brilliant future. And the worst thing about this way of living is it's really difficult to imagine anything else. Because our normal is to assign value, to get what we can get, and keep thinking it's great to get. But the followers of Jesus get called into something else. They get called into a kingdom of God that actually operates by a different set of rules. So when Jesus said, blessed is the poor, it does our heads in. So, how does it work when you're talking about the God of Jesus? Well, in God's economy, there's an important word called give or gift. It's as if God designed the world to have giving and receiving in mind. He creates lights in the sky and says to give light, trees to give fruit. He gives Abraham a land and children. He gives manna in the desert, water. God gives victories, understanding the desires of our hearts. Give us this day our daily bread. This is not the language of value by this. This is the value of gift. I was reading about this and I stumbled across a passage that now, um, anybody here ever listened to Talking Heads? Yeah, not, not many hands, so this is for you. Um, did you know that um, in Deuteronomy, it's like they're quoting David Burns? Um, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. And David Burns says, you may say to yourself, how did I get here? 
we'll carry on. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to his ancestors as it is today. And as it is today, that's the same as it ever was, same as it ever was for the three or four people who got it. In fact, if you talk about earning and gifts, we get Paul writing and saying the wages of sin is death, but the gift of eternal life. He kind of says that earning is used to talk about rough stuff and gift for what gives us. So Paul says what we earned wasn't so flash, but what God gave. God's economy seems to be based on a giving and receiving. Does that make sense? Even though our world operates on different rules to that. Time for a kid's story. This has got a bit heavy, hasn't it? Time for a kid's story, I think. Hey, everybody. Hi. We're going to read a book today. It's called The Ungiving Tree. Well, we're going to read this book, and I want you to ask some questions, because we're going to talk about this book, The Ungiving Tree. Once there was a tree. Da-da-da-da. Once there was a tree that had so much to give, it had branches to climb, it had leaves to jump in, and fruit to eat. But this tree wanted to keep these gifts to himself. That's not very nice. Every autumn, children would come and try to gather the tree's leaves and make piles to climb and play in. (laughs) And the tree would call the police. How would he make a phone? Well, let's see what it does. Every spring, children would try to climb up this trunk and swing from the branches. That looked fun. And the tree would release his pet python, Larry. What? <laughs> Look at this. Larry ate the little boy. Wow, that tree is mean. The tree decided it had had enough. Well, never again is anyone to climb my branches or rest in my shade. My fruit and my leaves, they are mine, mine, mine. And the tree took all that he had and held it all in for months and years. And soon, hardly anyone remembered the story of the tree that had so much to give. The end. So do you like my book? Well, I thought the whole story was interesting. Doesn't work to eat any of the fruit on top. So what's the purpose of a tree? To climb, gather leaves. Trees give us wood to build some houses. They do. What, Jess, what, what, what are trees supposed to do? Without trees, we wouldn't have any paper. And trees give you fresh air. So are you telling me that it's the nature of a tree to give? Yeah. I can't out-cute that, can I? God's way of doing is to give, and there seems to be an expectation that there will be a giving from that. So a tree gives, gives to us, And the giving story suggests the reason for the tree to exist is to give. Right now, in Bottle Lake, the blackberries are ripe. They are giving. Don't eat too many. 
So in God's economy, God's way of doing things, it's good to give. And as I understand that, that's supposed to be at the core of church. And in fact, at the core of relationships. There's always a, a taking and a giving, a receiving and giving going on in, in any relationship. An exchanging. So we see the first early church gets going and they take it really seriously. In Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Each day they continued to meet together in the temple. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And of course it's always continued exactly that way in church. Okay, maybe not. And we know that it, it, it didn't always go that well. We know there's a, we, there's a story of Ananias and Sapphira of a, a story where giving isn't working well. Okay. But there's this giving and exchanging. There's a, in fact, it's following the tradition of Jesus who ultimately gives his life. And John writes and says, Listen, we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us and we too should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And goes a bit further and says, um, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? That's the verse you don't want to remember when you walk past someone who is begging. You just, that's not a, that's an uncomfortable verse. What's going on here, I think, is we live in a world that's all about assigning value and getting what you can, but God has this other world that is, it is great to give. And actually, I said this was prompted by somebody asking me about spiritual gifts, and when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, it's pretty clear the church is all over the place. They have factions and fights over who they should follow, over what food they can eat, over some sexuality issues, and there's some people who are dragging lawyers into the mix, nothing like our church today. Or maybe a bit. And it looks like they're reinventing Monopoly because Paul says some of them are having meals, kind of communion meals together, and um, some people are getting to eat more than enough, and other people are going hungry. Okay? But in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12 to 14, he starts talking about church services. Now, actually, there's not a huge amount in the Bible about church services. Not the major focus of the Bible at all. And when Paul writes about this, he emphasizes love, and he talks about something that we've given a label of spiritual gifts, although I'd like to call it gifts of the Spirit. And it's pretty clear that as regards to spiritual gifts, Paul reckons it's great to give. And in the middle of his advice comes this, this verse. What shall we say then, brothers and sisters, when we come together, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so the church may be built up. Well, what did you bring to church today? Anyone feeling pressure? This suggests that when you get together in church, it's not all about, certainly not all about listening to Colin or singing songs. There's something we're giving to each other. There's some kind of exchange going on. And what are those things? Well, when I became a Christian, it was quite popular to go to seminars that talked about spiritual gifts. Anyone done those? I've actually done lots of them. Yep. Oh, right. There's been a lot of books and seminars and teaching sessions focusing on spiritual gifts, and some have been really helpful, and I have to say some have been really destructive. And genuinely, I've met people who have really lived under great guilt because they thought they were supposed to operate this way, and it never happened. 
which I have struggled with. In fact, I found a scholar, I liked this, I think I, I liked it enough that I stuck it here. He said, it is fair to say, both in the scholarly and popular literature, far greater confidence is expressed in some of these matters than the evidence itself warrants. Which, now, that's a bit technical language. What he means is, people have been really, it's like this, much more than maybe the biblical evidence says. Okay. So, Here's a list of gifts that are found in the Bible um, that are labeled kind of as gifts of the Spirit. And take a sigh of relief, I'm not going to go through them all. However, I have printed this page out of a book, I didn't write this, um, which is biblical um, references for all of them and some explanation about them. Now, there are some things to say. Whenever there's a gift, uh, whenever the list of gifts in the Bible, it's different, which suggests that each of the lists isn't supposed to be exhaustive, say them all. Um, and maybe they're not fixed, which to my mind makes sense because actually everything from God is a gift. And remember, it's great to give. God's economy is not all built about you. And I started there because, and, and you getting, because... Our culture is so much that, that actually in this world, we've tended to think it's about me. Okay. And some gifts are flashier than others. When, when they do these courses and, uh, and go to a Pentecostal church meeting, you'll see people up on the front of the stage claiming the flashier gifts. You don't often see them uh, uh, on the stage because their gift is administration. We don't tend to um, put that up. Crafts sometimes, never about celibacy. Who wants that gift? Oh, so many hands. And voluntary poverty. Come on, who's going to be first? Who can be third? Can I get to say? Yeah, no. We're drawn to some. We love. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons we're drawn, we want people to know God is alive. Because God is alive and speaks. We're drawn to some and there's others that, oh, we're not so sure. And, and some of those, they make it in the movies. Exorcism. Others, we think they're just everyday life. Hospitality. And as I say, I know people who have beaten themselves up because they were told that every Christian has this. And actually, that wasn't their experience. And clearly, that's actually not what the Bible says. Um, there's a scholar, a guy called Gordon Fee, who says, um, here are the misconceptions people have about gifts of the Spirit. He says that they're given to you at the time of conversion and don't change. So that's a eh. That Christian maturity is hampered if you don't know what your gift is. He says eh. Our gift defines our identity. I am a teacher. Eh. That our gifts are primarily linked to roles and offices in the church? Nah. That the more extraordinary gifts mean you have an advanced spiritual life? Please join me. <laughs> okay? That gifts have little to do with our natural abilities? Actually, often, you know, it, it, they are, well, they can be linked. That gifts concern the spirit of a person? No, it's better to call them gifts of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. That gifts define the character of the personal ministry of each Christian, that the emphasis on 
Uh, that some churches believe that the emphasis on spiritual gifts may threaten the unity of the church and that the lists of the gifts in the New Testament are definitive and exhaustive. Thank you. <laughs> they don't define you. As with everything else in life, a gift from God that what are you going to do with it? Does that make sense? And maybe some may be just for you, but some are for others. So let's be giving trees. So Paul writes, and he actually says this. He says, mate, um, this is for the common good. Now to each, the manifestation, long word, of the Spirit is given for the common good. And later on he says, this is the work of the one and the same Spirit who distributes them to each one as he determines. So it's not like you walk into a supermarket and say, right, I'm going to have some Hubbard's muesli. No, no, this is something that God's choosing the distribution. Remember post-earthquake? Did you guys get... You distributed food parcels, didn't you? I wasn't here. Did they get to pick the food, or did they just give in a box? Given a box. Okay, so think of it as being given a box. That, that, that's closer. Here, take this and pass it on. And pass it on because in God's economy, it's good to give. It's good to give. And yes, it's good to receive. All right. So now, honestly, my opinions. Um, I think... And, and this hasn't addressed the question I was asked specifically about tongues. I'll get there. God is alive and speaks to us today. That's what Christians believe. Sometimes it's clear-cut. You know this is what God says. Sometimes it's vague. And you kind of have to test it with others. And you have this impression, is this the thing? And when that's the case, it's really helpful to check with others. Paul reckons God gives gifts for us to use and says that they're to build up the body of Christ and that they're different. And actually in his writing, he says that, hey, when you're doing stuff, it should make sense and it should make sense to a stranger. So he says if it's, he, kind of, he has this thing about order. So some of the stuff you see when you go into some churches that's quite flashy, it should make sense to an outsider. And then ultimately, he seems to think that everyone has a part to play. Something to contribute to someone else. That's how he talks about church. And then lastly, sandwiched in the middle of these two chapters, 12 and 14, is the chapter we like to read at weddings about love. He says, love, 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 love. This giving thing happens in relationships of love. Okay, here's my take. Um, I want to say that God is alive and well today and that it is entirely appropriate and good for us to say, God have you got something to say through me or work for me for someone else? I think an, a path of being a Christian is to be asking that question. And again, I want to say sometimes that clear and sometimes I find that really frustratingly vague. I ask this. I ask this before I'm preparing sermons. God, what do you want to say? And there is the flashy, and look, I've prayed for people and, and seen dramatic results and prayed for people and seen no results. I, I, but I think the thing is for us to be paying attention, God, what are you doing? I think it's okay for us to be wrong, to say something and not be right, but I think we should speak that way. I don't think we do any favours when we say, thus saith the Lord. Actually, if I'm saying it, it's thus saith Colin, and he's hoping there's some God in it. It's okay to be wrong. Don't speak arrogantly as if you're all right. I think we're supposed to be praying for each other and giving and receiving, but also having conversations together. It happens there. There are people in our church 
who have experiences that other people just don't know, that are gifts. And I really, at this point, have wanted to share some of them, but I'm not going to. (laughs) There are people who have lived through things that are outside most of our experience, that it's helpful to know. A lot of people here lived through an earthquake. And did you notice, as soon as you went through the earthquake, suddenly you discovered this economy of giving? You are in this world where, hey, my fridge has run out and your fridge has run out. Let's have crayfish for dinner. Or whatever. You gave. It was easy. You had this neighbourliness. If you think God is giving you something to share, then actually ask God where and how. If you think it's to share from the front, then have a chat with me or one of the elders and you might get a chance or you might not, depends on the circumstance. We're really open to that but don't assume it'll always be up on the stage. When Nathan, in the Old Testament, Nathan confronts David about um, what David's been doing, those who remember that story, does he do it on a stage? No, does he announce it and say, I've got a prophetic word of God for you, David. No, because actually if he tells that, says that and tells the story, he's going to get off. What he does is he goes and he tells the story and he looks to see, are you listening, David? And when David hears the story, he says, this is no good and it has to change. Who is this person? And then Nathan gets to say, well, it's you. I think a lot of these gifts do function amongst us. But they function there one-on-one in relationship. General observation for our church, one of our difficulties is we run these big functions. We have 100 people to a move and groove, 100 people to a craft group. We, have, uh, we do a, a help run a parklands at play and a craft group. And we have all these people and it's all large numbers, which means all you can do is the stage kind of thing. But so much of sharing lives has to happen outside of that. Be careful of the stage effect. The Spirit does not stop working amongst us when the service ends. Does not just show up because we sang a bunch of songs. The Spirit of God is always with us. Always, always, always. This is Emmanuel, the God with us. Now what do we give from that? It's great to give and receive. And I I guess I I do want to say Paul reckons love is the new black. It is the bedrock on which Christ is the church. It is the context where giving works, giving and receiving. And that's what we try and grow in church communities. I'm painfully aware I started this message because I thought, yep, actually I haven't talked about this almost at all um, from the stage of spiritual gifts. Um, Partly because... Usually when I am asked, people want me to say what they have heard before. Partly because I am a little nervous of stages and what happens when the performance aspects of all of this. And yet, I firmly believe that that God does speak now through us. So I wanted to say that. And I wanted to say, listen... If you're really interested in the, 
what are the odd ones in this? If there was enough interest, I would happily do an evening thing down at the hall and say, come, let's talk about tongues, let's talk about these bits and pieces and compare stories because I think that too is a really helpful way into this. But I didn't think that was a Sunday morning. Does that make sense? Okay, sum up. We live in a culture that says it's great to get, but actually God calls us to say it's great to give and actually also great to receive. And there's an exchanging. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a couple of songs, two or three. Um, then we'll stop and have morning tea and do not think that things are over. That might be the point where actually God, this is, somebody needs me to listen to them. Right? That, that might be, I don't know. But there is this giving and receiving that is fundamental to church. Fundamental to what we're called to because it's connections with each other. And I don't know that our, our structures always help us with that. But that's what we're called to. Okay, thanks for being patient and listening to my uh, two cents worth. I'd like to pray, and if we can have the team up, lead us in a couple of songs of worship. I have no more expectation of this than God works, there's space, but we kind of let God take the lead in this. Holy Spirit, we love you, and we love that you love, love, love us. We don't want to be ungiving trees. In fact, we would love it if we were a community where there was this constant, I have this for you, you have this for me. And we'd love to see you work more dramatically. And we'd love to see you work and notice when you're working undramatically. Holy Spirit, make us one make us like you rescue us from thinking that it's all about us getting lead us to the place where we know it's great to give and receive